Welcome to the Conscious Combat Club, trauma-informed martial arts by women for women. I'm your host Georgia and I cannot wait to go on this journey with you. Please note that some listeners might find this content distressing. Take care, connect with your support networks and refer to the organisations in the show notes below. This episode features Danielle Salva. Danielle is the founder of Boxing Therapy. You might recognize her from having been on the show before, but now she has validated her practice. She's validated Boxing Therapy. And so we talk about bilateral stimulation, uh, DBT, and somatic experiencing, and so much more of what actually makes up Boxing Therapy as a practice. All right, Danielle, can you please tell everyone a bit about the difference between boxing therapy and trauma-informed boxing? Okay, first of all, fantastic way to start off because all of the boxing therapy programs are trauma-informed programs. And when I say boxing therapy, this is kind of this coined term for where that trauma-sensitive approach meets the therapy room in regards to the goals and the kind of the um, relationship agreement. So when someone comes from martial arts that is trauma sensitive, you know, they know that they're walking into a place where their past is going to be held and respected and they as humans are gonna be seen for that. That is in boxing therapy. And then the relationship takes a new level where it says, okay, what are your goals specifically related to the trauma or to the challenge that you're walking in here. And we make kind of a treatment plan for how it goes. And it gets looked at sort of um, the same way it would if you went to a talk therapist where you revisit the goals. And so I would say that's kind of the only difference because we have group therapy, um, that's boxing therapy, but essentially it's a trauma sensitive, um, you know, boxing class or Krav Maga class. Okay, can you talk me through what an example boxing therapy session might look like? Oh my God, I love this question. Okay, I love this question because as you see, I get very excited because there's not an exact like, this is what it looks like. The way someone who's probably really excited about art therapy is gonna be like, no, you don't draw a tree in a house and a person every time. Like there's a whole bunch of ways. So boxing therapy, um, it looks almost like a talk therapy session, except you're going to take out the talking and put in the actual movement similar to like a dance therapy experience. So what happens in boxing therapy is that first and foremost, we look at the emotional safety that's happening inside a person's body. And while that's occurring, that could be done while we're sitting down and talking, or that could be done while we're standing, you know, I'm, I'm right here on the mat. So you see these two bags. That could be done while we're literally, you know, warming up and talking and, you know, how are you feeling today? So it's very different how it's going to look, but all of them, all the boxing therapy type sessions are going to have um, a consent between them about how much boxing we're going to do, how much talking we're going to do. And it's figured out between the two people and the goals. So it changes and it's very, very unique in that it can it can grow as we develop what the goals are. I love that. It reminds me a lot of some therapists that I work with uh, talking about how sometimes they'll go for like a walk with their clients because it's a little bit less awkward than like sitting in front of each other face to face, just talking. You kind of like have walking or you might be like throwing a ball back and forth or like doing an activity, but just like obviously we're biased, but a level above that, even better, we get to hit things. But I love that you just brought that in because that's exactly where this came from. Also, my favorite therapists were the ones that were okay to like, oh, you know, we feel a little stuffy. Yeah, let's go for that walk. I, I really appreciate that. I appreciate when therapists can, you know, think a little more in that humane, out of the box way as opposed to what we're used to. Are there any specific tools that you bring into the boxing therapy space? Are there any like games that you've coined names for or that you can talk folks through? Oh my gosh, yes. Okay, so first of all, um, we have a couple of things that when somebody walks in right away, whether we're talking to figure out what the challenge is or we're simply feeling it more on a somatic level, there's a ready stance and a breathing that we do. And this ready stance allows a person to know that anywhere they are in the world, 
they can be ready. And the idea behind this is that we're not going to always know what's in front of us. We're not going to know what type of threat or challenge or obstacle. But if we have a position that we're in, that we can tap into our crisis systems, which are the fight, flight, or freeze responses, or fawn, thank God nowadays, which they added. Um, so I can even, can I show you very quickly? Yes. how? We, okay. So I'm going to push my chair aside, which feels so good to be able to do that here. Can, can you see me enough? We can, but just keep in mind that some people will be listening. So if you can sort of narrate what you're doing. Fully. Thank you for reminding me. Okay, so what we do first is we take one beautiful step back, okay? And this is called a ready stance. And the ready stance, a lot of places will call a fight stance or something. I call it a ready stance because in this position, for those of you that can't see, imagine you got one foot back, your arms are up protecting your face, and you are ready to flight, right, to run to fight if you need to. You can put your hands out in front of you or freeze. And you can take a deep breath, which is something I wanna show you, which is vasovagal breathing. And you do in for two, which is, and in again. Then you go out for two and out again. Emptying out the entire cavity for the next breath to go in to fill oxygen all the way down by the diaphragm. So if I have to give a name right here, right now, it changes here and there, but we have the ready stance and we have the warrior's breath. And the warrior's breath is something that I wear really proud on any of our shirts, actually. Warrior state of mind. I hope we have time to go into what um, DBT gives to boxing therapy, and that's that, that um, wise warrior mindset. But um, so yeah, the ready stance and that warrior's breath is um, kind of that mechanism that if you're coming in here before we even invite the, the boxing or anything that could be either triggering or exciting, we start with a way that a, a person can can collect and, and be contained while we do it. So so that's that's a little taste of when you walk in the technique that we yeah, use. I'm so grateful for the little taste. Um, I want to ask you about the warrior breathing. So it reminds me a lot of like the physiological sigh um, that Andrew Huberman talks about and that his lab created, which I personally love. Um, but I find it to be kind of an advanced tool to teach a lot of clients who have trouble with the breath uh, as a go-to tool. So how do you introduce that? How do you navigate uh, which clients it's going to be for and which clients it's not going to be for? Okay, so beautiful. I first love that you're even recognizing that which clients it could be for and which clients it might not be for. And I think that that's first and foremost within the trauma-sensitive approach, recognizing that a breathing that might be perfect for me or you might not work at all. And that's totally fine. So I actually introduce it exactly like that. Um, and I also credit this breathing to kids kicking cancer, which I know you've met Jill. She's the one who taught it to me. And after she taught it to me, I went on like a whole research. Like I couldn't believe how much was out there on this. Um, so what I do is I tend to give a little of the psychoeducation behind it, which what I like to explain to people is that when you take a deep breath in, you take that first deep breath and it goes in and it feels good. But then some of us have a tiny bit of extra space that if we give a little more attention, that extra second of time, we can notice it and take that little extra bit in that that's just that extra bit. So it's in, most people understand that. And some people have the need for that. I just did it, I didn't even realize. So once you have it in there, the explaining it out, I actually don't always explain it as out for two. I often explain it as out and then that rush. And if someone doesn't understand that, I take a piece of paper. We actually were just doing this yesterday at a place um, where we work with people with really high personality disorders and all sorts of fun stuff like that. You take a piece of paper and you have them break it like a brick. So you take a deep breath and you go, and then and at that letting out completely that extra surge of energy because it's the diaphragm literally it's a muscle going boom like a bicep that goes like this once you explain it like that and someone feels that it's like oh wait a minute that might work when i'm boxing and actually i like to do it um if someone doesn't feel connected to breathing a lot of times i'll say forget breathing it's so annoying that we all have to breathe like come on let's use the tool of mindfulness as what's your mind full of mindfulness so if while you're breathing, you're getting so thrown off, it doesn't, whatever it is, then all we need to do is sometimes take a deep breath. And then when we throw out an open punch, let the air out. So if you punch with the air coming up, you can feel it. So those together while describing the benefits can help. But if it's not helping someone in the middle of a training, I'm going to say, 
any type of breathing that helps you bring your center back, bring your calm down. I think I've used your words before, window of tolerance from two years ago, or you know what I mean? Anything that helps them get down. So it doesn't have to be that two in, two out. I find it very, very accepting, meaning people usually take to it, um, but if they don't, there's other tools for mindfulness. 100%. Thank you so much for explaining that. I just want to like segue as well to say how much I'm loving the energy of our conversations. I always love your energy. I feel like when you work in the trauma space, it's quite serious, right? Like the work that we're doing is heavy. Some days say days, but sometimes some days it feels like a lot. Um, and it's just yeah. so great. The positive energy that you bring to this space and how much you clearly love it. Uh, I just love that all around the world, like we are so dotted around the literal world. If you looked at it on a map, there's all these like high energy people who are yes. just as excited about this stuff as me. It's the best. Yes. And thank you for pointing that out because I'm telling you, I'm like, I was waiting for us to speak because the energy comes out when we connect over it. So I'm so excited and thank you for appreciating it. <laughs> um, you alluded to DBT before. Um, we have spoken about this a little bit on this podcast before. So just to give some context to folks who aren't sure about what that is, can you explain what DBT is in yeah. like a therapeutic sense and then how it relates to boxing? Totally, totally. And um, actually, I think I remember now that you just brought that question up, this is where we started last time we spoke because we were about to use DBT in that first pilot. Okay, DBT is, um, actually our programs are pretty split between DBT, EMDR, which is that bilateral stimulation, and somatic therapies at this point. So starting with DBT is really important because it gives kind of that base um, empirical background for what we do even without the boxing. So DBT is a spinoff of CBT. It stands for Dialectical Behavioral Therapy, and it has four, it has four components. These components are mindfulness, um, emotional regulation, distress tolerance, and interpersonal effectiveness. Now, it's kind of boring hearing it all like pointed out, but it's really important because the mindfulness in DBT is exactly as I just said it. It's how can a person learn what their mind is full of? How do we observe it? How do we describe what we're experiencing without jumping in to not be mindfulness? Like there's a lot in there. So DBT has a lot of activities that I use um, a little bit differently. Like I used to have people draw to music because that's one of the mindfulness techniques you get right from Masha Linehan who, you know, inter she invented it. But I'll put on music and have people box. So for instance, a person can observe if it's fast, heavy music, you know, that feeling of anger that comes out a little bit versus if it's operatic and la, 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 you know, that it's a total game changer. So the mindfulness piece of the DBT is what in kind of informs how we get that pathway. And it talks a lot about not judging. There's no shoulds in DBT. It's like my favorite thing. Whenever someone says, oh, I should have done this. And it's like, okay, you know what? You didn't, you want it. It's in there. There's a drive. Let's use that. You know, the should, there's no, but even it's an unbelievable thing. That's on the mindfulness side. As you go along, I won't go into each one, but the emotion regulation and the distress tolerance, the idea behind these is that people can learn how to identify an emotion that means stop. This emotion says, do not go to the job interview because it's too scary and it's going to crush you and don't do it versus, Hey, there's fear. There's a feeling, it's telling you not to go, but your confidence on the other side says go. How do we observe that, ride it out, figure it out tools? So that's the emotion regulation and distress tolerance. And through boxing, we do a lot of push through where we'll invite a client to punch 10 more after they think their heart, and this is of course with checking the heart rates, making sure everyone's safe. Once they think they're done, what would it be like to try 10 more? As an example, that's the distress tolerance where you push through it. So anyway, all the way down to the um, interpersonal effectiveness, all of this in DBT is about consent and boundaries. So it's it was created for personality disorders, but honestly, nowadays, thank God, like all of us humans can benefit. We don't have to have a big label that says personality disorder. No, like learning that what I say is important. If I say no, I don't want you to sit that close to me. That's my prerogative. Anyway, I could keep going on this entire therapy. It's it's a beautiful kind of communication for people and it works so well in in kind of giving that safety net in boxing therapy that there's real empirical techniques that we're drawing on. And I'm just appreciative because it goes right down to safety, emotional safety as the goal. 
Yes. Okay. I want to come back to the EMDR bilateral stimulation piece, definitely. Um, sure. But your pilot, um, what was the structure? Like how many people did you have? What did oh. you find? How long did it go for? Can you give us a summary, please? I'm so excited to hear this. Oh my God. It was unbelievable. It was, I think in the end, 12 participants. Um, we did it kind of in the middle of COVID. So a couple of our outlying factors, we have to figure out how to put them in. We had a couple of people that had to miss here and there. Aside from that, it was an eight week program for people that aged out of foster care. So they were 18 and up. Um, they had been in foster care their whole life, very high level of trauma coming into this program. And we ran an eight week pilot of DBT and boxing therapy in one. So each session was learning a different DBT skill or tool. Um, there's actually tools like what your face is looking like and how it feels. So if we do a half smile, for instance, there's something called an acceptance pose. That's something that changes the whole hormone system in our body. So there was no talking in this pilot. It was literally an hour each week of boxing and mindfulness that allowed people to do muscle memory on the skills at DVT. We had people yelling, my turn, stop, you know, anything that claims space or that says, you know, this is okay to say, I decided this. So that's what we did. And I don't know, since then, I kind of just felt like a lot more free to say, these programs are real. They're not just what we're making in this kind of boxing therapy laboratory here. They have backing. So that was, um, I think that was two summers ago now. And um, I'm still staying close to Florida. We have a program, please get starting up in Tampa with someone named Oleg, who I'd love to introduce you to. He is just starting to learn all of this trauma-sensitive martial arts. And yeah, so that was our pilot. Um, if there's more questions, let me know. Yes, um, what measures did you use? Did you do like pre and post measures? What did you look at? Okay, so we did, um, we kind of took a couple measures. There was a Martin Seligman measure, Seligman measure for happiness. It's kind of like the positive psychology. We took questions from there. We took questions out of a DBT. There was like a three page DBT questionnaire. We wanted to give all of these live action, but we didn't have a social worker on the ground and don't believe in um, like triggering people even in the questionnaires. So we took a couple of them. I'm saying this because we're really hoping to have um, like a big research project done on this. We'd love to have a university pick this up and be able to actually control a lot of the parts that we weren't able to within a regular gym setting. Um, but what we ended up doing is every week we had the participants fill out three questions, what they got from it, what they would do differently, and what they're... Um, and oh, and what they're taking to the next week, like what their practice is kind of a thing. And through that, we saw that there was a lot of people that from the beginning of the day till the end, utilized the tools to bring their heart rate down. We got to see live action. We asked at the beginning of the class, this is a technique we use a lot. If you could rate yourself on zero to 10, zero being nothing's bothering you in the world, 10 being there's some emotional or, or physical intensity happening that you can't think of anything. So we would ask that question in the beginning and some people would walk in seven, eight, and then ask the question at the end and people would walk out two, three. So there was a place to put that on the paper. We have the results right now. And it was clear that we were testing for goals and motivation, general mood. I have to check the exact ones we got. Um, and I believe confidence had like a interesting, there was a couple questions on how to judge confidence and it wasn't a statistically significant um, research because we didn't have enough participants, but we saw changes in all of them. So as far as a qualitative research, they were all improved. So really cool and wanted more programs, um, which is also like really part of the results. Thank God. Yes, absolutely. Um, and also I love that you brought in uh, Martin Seligman's work. Um, I don't know if you've seen, but there's a researcher from not, one of the Harvard schools um, okay. out of the room and he wrote um, a review paper a few years ago about um, the sort of a literature review about how martial arts might be linked to each of the yeah. um, the PERMA model. Oh my god I have to find um, this. You, well it's excellent um, it, it certainly forms the basis of a lot of the stuff that I teach in the courses that I run with martial arts coaches um, but he's also done more recent research sort of like 
trying to look more specifically at that. So, for example, they looked at a group of Muay Thai fighters um, who were like quite accomplished fighters, and they surveyed them about like um, positive emotions, engagement, relationships, meaning, and accomplishment um, while they're shadow boxing. And there's a public paper that was published recently about. Um, literally yeah like Seligman's oh. positive psychology in martial arts so it's so cool that you use Wait, that as this, a measurement in your study yeah also I can't take credit for this this was my partner at the time um really awesome woman and social worker named Ryan Cookley she's the one who brought Martin Seligman in she was like hey there's this happiness scale it might be worth it I am so excited that I even thought to bring that up because I can't believe he's done any research with martial arts this is unbelievable well thank yes. you for that yeah, yeah so space. I've been trying to get him on the podcast. We have like been trying to tee something up. It might come out in like a month or so. So yeah, like watch this space. You'll be able to hear more about it on the show. Um, cool. But I am so happy that you've done this pilot. Um, I would love to chat to you offline to see if I can help make some connections to a university uh, to help get the proper research done. I think the world definitely needs oh to to see that done to to that standard. So. Let's come back to that. Um, but Absolutely. I want to make the most of our time together. So let's talk about EMDR, bilateral stimulation. What is it and what does it have to do with boxing? Okay. So first of all, it has everything to do with boxing because, and for those of you that are not watching and you're listening right now, I need you to do this in front of your face for you, okay? Boxing is very back and forth, okay? Now I am putting my fists in front of my face, left, right, left, right. It's very rare, exactly, or you can parry, exactly, right out of the way, back and forth. It's rare for anyone who's even just pretending to be a boxer. Let's say a seven-year-old kid goes, I'm boxing. It's rare for them to go like, choo-choo with like one fist. You know what I mean? It's always this like, boom, boom, boom. You know, you think of like kangaroos boxing, boom, boom. So back and forth, back and forth. Now, the whole point of EMDR therapy, of bilateral stimulation, is for the left and right brain to communicate. Now, it started, I don't want to get this whole story wrong, so I'm just going to give the little basic. Apparently, it started because the creator was jogging and saw the stones even going back and forth or the, or the trails, which is unbelievable. So the idea that bilateral stimulation or that our eyes going back and forth or sounds happening on each side, that it does something to connect the brain, that's like a really old idea. I think it is hysterical to me that it was only now that we're putting it together with boxing, that bilateral stimulation and boxing as, a, as an infused thing. So bilateral stimulation is, is an old not that old. I think I think EMDR was only created in the 80s, actually. Um, but the idea of bilateral stimulation happens in quite a few therapies now. There's different tapping mechanisms that do on um, different meridians in the body. Again, I really don't know enough about that to speak about it. But some of them also do, you know, once to each side having it. So the way we're use, utilizing boxing right now is for these um, these different parts of the brain to communicate while endorphins and serotonin is high. And what we're trying to do is, is experiment with dopamine because dopamine is the hormone that if someone has it in their body, they feel great, right? We can eat, we can, we can have fun, dopamine gets created. So if dopamine is happening because we're a little bit on that higher heart rate system, let's say 90 to 120 as opposed to our resting, and that's happening while we're going back and forth, back and forth, the amount of um, nonverbal processing that's happening in the moment, I'm guessing is way off the charts. So we're paying a lot of attention to this here because aside from it being very cathartic, when you hit things out, that's one thing, but you don't actually have to hit anything for your eyes to be going back and forth and for the sounds to be happening. So there's a lot of bio um, neurobiology behind it, which we can talk a little bit about, but mainly the idea that our brain is communicating from side to side that's what's happening. And it's, it's magical in this left and right boxing experience. Yes. Um, I'm so here to learn more about the neurobiology of it. I do hold space for the idea that we don't 100% know. Just like most things with the brain, we have some ideas, but we don't really know that much. So I will, I will put that as a preface to say <laughs> that we might look back on this in, in five years' time and be like, oh, we were so wrong about the mechanism. Oh but the, the result, I think, is the most important, but I'm curious about the neurobiology. So what have you learned and what can you share? Okay, 
I love how you just said that because I'm actually hopeful that in five years we're going to be like, oh my God, we had it all wrong and now we finally get it and people can heal and be happy. And so I hope that's the case. No, I'm kidding. I mean, I'm, I'm only half kidding because thank God, even in our lifetimes, we've seen where really big approaches have been like, actually, that was a little damaging. Let's turn this way. So from what I've learned and what I understand, um, actually, I was really appreciative. I reached out on LinkedIn and this um, EMDR clinician named Andrew Keefe answered me a couple years ago. And he's the reason I'm walking around with like a pretty decent understanding of EMDR. Since then, thank God I've done quite a bit more research, but this is the way I understand it. And I think it's really relatable. Our memories get stored in different parts of our brain. And this was a, this was the new idea, probably, you know, I don't even know when this was the new idea. It used to be thought that we have a part of our brain that has memory in it and it gets stored just like we have a part of our brain, you know, that does our temperature control. And so, but what they found is that memory actually gets stored all over. Memory gets stored in the temperature part because guess what? We have memories that have feelings that also have sensations that also have, you know, actual content and time and all of that's related. So what's happening in EMDR is that those memories, if you're talking about certain memories and then they're in the frontal lobe, okay? In the frontal lobe, it means it's being activated right now. While that's happening, if you're experiencing it on a different hormone system, let's say you're more relaxed, that way your memories have a way of storing. Because when you're when a human's overwhelmed, we all know this, it feels over, overwhelming. You can imagine thoughts are flying everywhere. Memories are going all over. So if a loud sound happens and then there's a big explosion, we might, every time there's a loud sound, that memory gets lit up. So once we can talk about it or bring it to the forefront while we're calm, our memories have a chance at going back. Now the bilateral stimulation is the way of putting down the senses. So if we're going one, two, one, two, and I'm telling you, hey, you know what, while I was listening to that, it really was very scary and it brought out this feeling that anytime I, while that's happening, my frontal lobe is on both. It's giving a chance for the memories to calmly go back to the right places so that anytime there's a boom, it might not come with explosion because it's nicely in the memory of that happened on January, da, 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 da. we can bring it up when we want. So I hope this brought out a little of like where our biology meets our kind of live action, how we respond to things. Um, yeah, that's a little bit how I understand it. Yeah, it's making a lot more sense to me now. Um, so the way I place this in my mind, and you can correct me if I have taken this in the wrong direction, is I've always thought about EMDR as helping people process memories by being able to say that was then and this is now. Like that was them and this is me and to have that separation. And it feels a bit like while I'm punching, it's being like, yeah, okay, I'm punching. So I'm here. And also that was then. Whereas often our traumatic memories really feel like they're occurring in the present. They don't feel like memories. They don't feel like flashbacks. They feel like right now I'm on right now. And so it makes that was then and this is now. Oh, that's really beautiful. I don't know if I necessarily put that with EMDR, but I actually really love the way you're saying that. It kind of made me even just like calm down for a moment because when I know when the work is with someone who has really gone through a lot of trauma, I mean, we're often the work that's done even before the hitting or any of the martial arts is so long and beautiful and like just takes a lot of real calming down and that idea of that was then this is now it takes a lot like you're right it feels as if the trauma is live action happening so i think um if i were to put the emdr piece in there the dissociation that can happen when you feel like it's happening our bodies go into a really smart mode it's actually healthy that our body goes, I'm out of here. Goodbye. See you later. That is way too painful for me. I don't want to be there for that. So the EMDR, it really, it brings you right back. So if let's say, I mean, I keep doing this because I think EMDR one day is going to have a real physical component, a real somatic whole sweating experience. Um, but again, who knows in five years what that's going to you know, look like. Um, but I think that's that piece that exactly as you're saying, um, it gives a tangible um, physical way of being in the moment, you know, grounding the feet on the ground while we're doing this, for instance, sometimes that's 20 minutes of a session. Now, I don't know what to call that, but we're doing that before we're even punching. 
before there's any, you know, if there's a real need because the trauma is so live action that the person might be, you know, right back there. Yeah. I don't know what to call that either. I guess coming back into the window of tolerance, right? There's no no good engaging more of the fight if we're already out of our window of tolerance or at least coming something that looks looks more like we're coming into our window of tolerance. Um, yeah, and yeah, actually, if I could just say, um, I think squeezing. I actually recently started working with people who have Parkinson's just because of the crossover with Rocksteady. I think it's beautiful that there's such a research pool that, have done, you know, and um, what I'm learning is for someone with Parkinson's, the dopamine connection isn't there. It's not happening. So to squeeze and then to squeeze and then to try to do it, it's showing me just how important it is for someone who has their whole dope, their dopamine system's fine, but when they're dissociating, it's gone. So it's reminding me just how much just squeezing the body. There's something we do, which is called the squeeze and breathe, where we squeeze every single part and we feel the ground really, really strong. And then we release it only to know that we can do that and we can go into this moment. So it kind of brings us into the like live action, into the ability to have the brain, I think, communicating back and forth. First and foremost, because you're using your muscles, you're using your actual heart system in place which stimulates also the vagal nerve, but that's a whole other discussion that we can go down if you want, but um, <laughs> we're on our breathing that we were in in the beginning. Yeah, I mean, let's go there right now. What do you mean yeah. by it? it activates the vagal nerve? Okay. Someone who has no idea. I am still totally learning about this right now. And if anyone has the opportunity to look up someone named Trauma Geek, she's on Facebook. She is wonderful. Um, I'm really learning how much the vasovagal nerve um, communicates. So this is a nerve system that goes all the way from the back of the stem. I turned around realizing half of us can't see me, but from the back of the base of the head, all the way down our whole body. And it's a communication system actually. And it communicates to all of our nerves and it goes back and forth. So when we take a very deep breath that goes down to our diaphragm, we are, the ability to stimulate this entire nerve is what's happening. We have alveoli in our, you know, what, what brings the oxygen to our lungs and right back, this whole system is connected. So stimulating that also invites our crisis system to be put down. It kind of says there's the fight and flight, which go on one type of system, and then the freeze, which is a different type of nerve. So when we do different breathing and different grounding techniques, we're actually putting down our sensory system. And that allows for our mind to be more clear and more in the moment. And at what point in boxing do we bring that in? Is that like a between rounds kind of thing? Oh, or? Yeah. I realized I totally didn't do it justice when you asked me in the beginning, like, what does a boxing therapy session look like? Because I'm realizing as we're getting started, there's so much to talk about. Um, so this question brought me back there because actually a lot of people have very opposite reactions to this type of these breathing. So some people, while we're doing boxing, we're going to do the warrior's breath every 30 seconds. So for instance, we box for 30 seconds and then we warrior's breath for 30 seconds. But, and then some people actually get very dizzy from that type and need two minutes full of boxing and an entire minute of the warrior's breath. So it gets played with based on the person. And what I find is actually, um, I think the therapeutic part itself is letting the person know that we're not settling on this. We're going to keep growing as the treatment grows because you're a human and it doesn't work that, you know, we research this and it works for, you know, maybe the inner bell curve of the humans in our society. It doesn't work for everyone. So we create it as we go along. And I think the, permission for the client to be able to say, hey, I don't really like it like that. I want to breathe more often. I don't like breathing at all. Stop telling me to breathe. You know what I mean? Like we can bring it in. So it's really unique. Um, I do find that if someone is getting too over censored, like you can see it, they're sweating, they're red, they're everything. I might invite more, even if someone doesn't want it. And that's where we end up going into like what we are used to. And people who are used to crisis and trauma don't even realize sometimes that it's comfortable to stay in that like, you know, and so that's where it gets a little bit more um, where I lead a little more, but usually it's, it's very consensual and changes, thank God, by the person. Yes. So one of the things that I love about what you just said and about the space that we're in is that 
one of the unique things about martial arts compared to other things in the trauma sensitive space is that we really get to raise our heart rate so much right like you maybe do that a little bit in dance but like yoga definitely not so much art no but what we get to do is we get to experience in our body some of what it feels like physiologically when we are stressed when we're anxious when we're overwhelmed our heart rate goes up our breathing rate goes up and we get to experience that within a container where we can respond to that without the emotional stress of something having caused that other than exercise and as far as getting to like get in reps at practicing sitting with that at practicing grounding ourselves like there's just nothing better than the space that we're in right Absolutely. I actually really love how you verbalized that and summarized it because I think that what you just said is exactly why I'm so obsessed with pushing through on this modality because it feels like, thank God today, we have a lot of different types of therapeutic options and really we're eclectic. There's like recreational therapy, which means you can play shuffleboard if that's the game you like. But I feel like with this, it's exactly as you're saying that it's one of the first times I'm coming into contact that in the therapy room, it's actually celebrated to bring something in that does exactly that. And what I find really beautiful is that the exercise raised heart is exactly, as you said, the stressed out heart. So if in that room we get to do that, we get to practice, it's safe, it's unbelievable. One thing that I find really important with it as a therapy is that we're recognizing as boxing therapists that triggers can happen just by the body experiencing the same feeling as when you're stressed out with the real trigger. So I have people that come in for the therapy and within a few seconds of the heart going up, there's almost like this look of like, wait, am I okay? And because it's the moment where a human realizes, wait, I'm feeling this stress. Is it because my body is doing the punches? Is it because there's something else? We have a moment where we don't have that kind of story behind it. And until we do, it can can be uncomfortable. So I think it is awesome that as as boxing therapists, we can create kind of a container that is safe so that people can learn that we we can practice this. So yeah that's um that's why i think it's so important to keep pushing through with this type of with this type of therapy one of the big reasons right and the fact that it's a therapeutic thing too or a trauma-informed thing because it's not just the fact that heart rates are going up loads of us do things where our heart rates are going up but it is that we are intentionally practicing bringing it back down and it is also that we have 100 control over when our heart rate goes up how much it goes up and what going up means for us right uh, i've definitely worked with clients who used to dissociate every time they would exercise because the feeling of exercising was so reminiscent of stress it was so reminiscent of their trauma um and so it's it's not definitely it cannot just be this blanket thing of being like it's great for your heart rate to go up and then practice bringing it back down it needs to be from a place of choice from a place of autonomy from the student or the client having control and then in in partnership with tools to be able to step in and bring that heart rate back down like it's getting to be too much Oh my God, it's exactly how it is. This is literally what's happening in the room. And I am very glad that you pointed out trauma sensitive. This is where we completely overlap because a trauma sensitive martial artist knows that first safety and consent, as you're saying, and then we can let our heart rate go because that's when we can actually feel that grounding and feel the safety to bring it back down. Once we know we can do that, I think then we can play with it. And actually one, um, a theorist that really was very instrumental in my early days learning what type of therapy I'm gonna lean on in in the room is a man, um, Salvador Mnuchin. He's one of the fathers of family therapy. And he started out way back then where he would raise the tension in the room. He would have a family come in and he would be like, wow, what can we do here to make all the stress come out so we can deal with it right here in the therapy room? And then a lot of different theorists later on realized, hey, wait a minute, this is actually raising tension. We as therapists or you know, clinicians, we can't do that to our clients. We can't have where the means justifies the ends. It, do- it doesn't work here, right? So what happened was um, throughout the years of developing family therapy, that was kind of put aside and we, we, we keep things very calm now. Um, but what I loved about that was it said that until you actually allow for some of that stress, some of that 
overwhelmingness to come out, you won't have the, the playing ground to work on it. And what I've learned over time is that it's more than just the verbal playing ground to talk about it. What is it, you know, what is stressing you out right now? It's actually, as you're talking about, the physiological going through, the heart rate's going up. The body goes into all of the different um, kind of autonomic nervous system stress responses in that very moment to decide, am I going to shut down the metabolism right now so we can run around and, and fix something? Am I going to calm things down? Right? All of these are happening live action. So that initial idea that we can raise tension and then we as therapists or we can help to put it back and help people experience it. We don't do this anymore. So now within the ability to say, hey, we're going to throw a couple punches right now and see how that feels. First, we're going to check out what is your heart rate doing? When your heart rate is feeling like that, what's going on in your body? Where do you go? As you talked about dissociation, if, if someone's going to dissociate, all the work we do before that allows them to know, hey, I have a way to get right back here. So the way to do it in the office is the way people get to practice. And then it kind of happens automatically where all of a sudden we're walking around, we feel a little stressed. And, you know, I have clients that tell me I go like this. Now, for those listening, I just did the warrior's breath because it was an automatic, you know, and that's that's what I get reminded of. So it's really cool that we can actually use this ability in in the office and um, and practice. Yes, I love this. I really want to underscore what you just said, um, because oftentimes what I will explain to folks from from my perspective, right, is that one of the gaps that there can be between what you learn in therapy and what you're able to do in practice when you're with family, when you're at work, when you're interacting with other human beings, is that we go from a state of being really calm, we're, we're on a couch, we're in a, a safe space, we're in an office environment, there's no emotional stimulus, we learn a grounding strategy, and then for most of us, the next time we'll go to implement it will be at that moment of stress. And that for me, pounding ground, which is what we call this activity of allowing our hearts to pound and then practice grounding, is the bridge between those two scenarios whereby you have the opportunity to practice without the emotional stimulus, um, because then it's a bit easier to break the looping cycle where our brains are kind of like justification machines and they'll go, <laughs> oh, a bad thing happened. Now I'm feeling stressed. Well, I know it was a bad thing because I'm feeling stressed and overwhelmed and we get stuck in that loop. Whereas if it's exercise, a lot of the time we can stay separated from that. We can be mindful and we can go, oh, I'm feeling my physiology change. I'm going to bring it back down rather than I have anxiety. I'm going to bring it back down. But what you just said was also this piece around ethically, right? We absolutely as therapists <laughs> cannot intentionally stress out our clients sitting on the couch or wherever being in the therapeutic space so that they can practice writing. Right. So what can we do? We can invite them to exercise, right? Right. I know. It's like, imagine, let's just poke around and see what kind of hormone system we can bring up here. One thing you said actually made me feel really excited um, just to just to highlight a little bit the fact that when we're sitting in the office or when we're sitting, even when we're training in a martial arts gym, it's a different hormone system than a lot of times the when, when we're supposed to utilize those systems. So if, let's say even when we're practicing hitting things out, we're used to feeling a really high heart rate. But then as we're walking up to a job interview, it's like, kind of high but not exactly like these are things that it doesn't just take oh i figured out when i beat really fast i feel stressed there's all these nuances behind it that as time goes on um i i believe based on what i see that we we as humans we learn more meaning behind the different heart rates we learn how it feels while it's happening and then we have options. Sometimes we might want to practice keeping the heart rate higher a little bit longer because through punching things out, we realize actually when I let it stay up as much and I don't dissociate, sometimes stress happens and then I feel better later on in the day and it's okay also. Meaning I feel like we have the ability to play with letting our feelings happen and not only learning how to bring it back down to resting, which is the first step. And all of us, I feel like deserve this. I wish in first grade, it was like, guys, let's sit around and enjoy the fact that we each have a different pathway back to our own mindfulness, our own, what is our mind full of? I like to remind ourselves that. And I think that that in and of itself can just quiet our whole being to let us 
listen and feel and experience and and that practice as you're saying then means that please god as we're walking around and going into those modes where we're really not expected to be like oh my god i'm so mad right now let me right now go count to 10 and do my breathing like no unless we practice that so many times our it has to be an automatic shift there has to be something that happens to our whole being so it is so wonderful getting to practice this and doing it through consent means that we're actually leaving the the container kind of we're, we're saying the container is yours this is your being so it's really a wonderful dance um getting to do that yes definitely <laughs> um it kind of brings us to the third attribute of boxing therapy when you mentioned before that boxing therapy is really dbt emdr and somatic experiencing um and i know for me personally i used to work with a somatic experiencing psychologist and like the my biggest takeaway from somatic experiencing was that i was you know struggling with feelings of anxiety um, and he would be like, okay, well, we're just going to sit with it. And I was like, okay, the purpose of sitting with it is that because like, if I sit with it, then it will start to dissipate. And he was like, no, it's just to sit with it. And honestly, it blew my mind to be like, but I'm not going to try and fix it. There's nothing to, you're saying no, no, no to fixing it. I'm not going to wow. fix the anxiety. I'm just going to be anxious and sit with it and feel it. And he was like, yes, that's your homework. And I was like, and then when do I stop feeling anxious? <laughs> oh my gosh, I totally love that you had that experience. It is so funny because it is so real. Yes, yes. I'm really, I'd be so interested just like the person you went to and actually now I'm studying um, a little bit with one of my interns that before social work school trained in somatic experiencing and realizing how much the boxing part and the exciting that nervous system is not necessarily in the mainstream literature and that we are kind of putting in something new. I really, really want to research this more. One thing that I'm noticing here in the office and in the gym setting is that when the heart rate goes up, when it's with consent, it's very easy to shift into something that a human doesn't, a person doesn't even realize that they're not even in that consent base anymore. Meaning when our heart rate goes so high up, we enter into this mode of automatic pilot. And that's where we get into that fight, flight, or freeze type responses, because it is an, an automatic space when we're like going and we're vibing. And, you know, so I really wonder how much is happening on a somatic level that, you know, when you say you were, you were told, yeah, you're just going to feel the anxiety. It's not that it's going to go away because we do something and fix it. No, you just feel it. And so I really think a lot about that moment, that, that being in that survival mechanism, because we're all, you know, people that have this automatic system for survival which kicks in when we allow our heart rate to go really high sometimes when our heart rate goes really low too there's like this like almost like we need something our again there's survival systems that kick in so i'm i'm curious more how much we're impacting on a somatic level while we're allowing the higher heart rate and we're feeling it and being in it and a lot of times i'll, I'll quickly pull up i'm turning to the side because i have a big bulletin board of like feelings and you know i'll have someone quickly run up to this big sheet and point to what they're feeling while this whole thing is happening and sometimes they'll go point 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 because there's some frustration there's some relief there's some anxiety there's some joy there's and all of this is happening while the either punching or the breathing it's all the different parts of it so i think it is really really important that the playing field stay open during those calming times where we get to practice bringing ourselves back the warrior's breaths in between the punching and that is just as important as catching the moment where it's i'm doing it because i'm physically choosing jab cross jab cross versus i've gone into this emotion mind as we talked about in dbt where it's letting my whole being get taken over and i'm allowing that i'm saying this is the safe moment to feel that level so it's a dance between them and i think that um I think on a somatic level, there's um, there's a lot of priming and grounding that we can do and then have as our automatic muscle memory ability when we're outside of this space. Yes, I think really one of the big things to take away from this conversation is just how many different types of therapy may be at play in a boxing therapy space right in that it's so hard to tease them out you know we yeah. haven't even touched on the core of somatic experiencing which is this idea that there is an incomplete action stuck in the body that needs to be completed i think that was for me what was told to me as being the reason why 
you know, you would welcome domestic violence survivors into a space to practice punching was because, you know, they would be able to punch and that that would complete the fight response that they didn't get to complete at, you know, the time of their trauma. And that has not been studied yet, to my knowledge, but it has so much potential, along with all of the other areas. Yeah, you know, it's really interesting. I think we went out for a second, so I hope I got exactly what you said. Um, but thinking about somatic experiencing as that kind of there's something in our body that has to be released or worked out, yeah. kind of the body keeps the score. Um, I think we use a lot of that within the theory. And even though it's not fully researched, when people feel a sense of relief from it, I mean, again, I really try to stay evidence-based because I don't know what else there is other than our experience and learning from those that have really, really put it down. But when someone gets relief because they notice, a lot of times I'll have someone when we're working on chokes, for instance, I'll have someone literally put their hands up to their, their neck and it's almost like they feel like they're being suffocated and like they can't talk. And it goes exactly with the meridians of speech and when someone feels like they have something in their throat, uh, you know, and so when we're working on that, ripping the hands down and jumping and we do that little bit of the pounding ground in that move because that's how to release it, you know, I am sure that there is more happening on a physiological level and the throat is opening up. And then when a person is able to say, oh, or no, or yes, right, when you link it and then the, the larynx and the throat, like it's actually, um, vibrating like so i i don't know how much we need to say like i mean obviously it'd be nice to have research on that but the relief that a person feels after that is um is something that we measure and i think it's really cool that you said it's really hard to tease out all the different theories because right now our training in this has a lot more therapies that we didn't even talk about i couldn't take out cbt for instance because i didn't understand how in this therapy we're not using core limiting beliefs because when we get stuck in this mindset that's a lot of times when we have to release it so we have that in it as well i feel like there's um um it's funny to say this but also the play therapy idea where you meet the client where you are how that meets our client centered and that the actual environment is the therapy i think that i would say that that's probably the number one of all of the therapies that we do because this is a um the type of therapy where someone playing out their survival system their whether you know let's say they were in a situation where they had to fight but really they froze that might be stuck on a somatic level in the body but the playing environment where you get to play it out where you get to run to run to one punching bag and punch it out and then sit down and say wow i actually have more strength than i thought and then you run to the other side like it's very playful so i'm laughing that that's where i in my heart like end up you know obviously there's all of the somatic pieces and the EMDR. And we didn't, um, I'm not sure if we talked about the vasovagal breathing as much as I would have even put in there. And that's coming into a lot of our therapies. Um, but so all of this is ingredients. And I really, I say this so often, I, I don't understand why there isn't sports therapy for people or boxing therapy. Keep it at that because it has the, I really believe in the emotional safety. Um, I know I could keep going on and on about this. Like it's so passionate when I'm like, why is sports therapy for athletes? Why isn't it for people that just don't want to sit still and, and really have some anger to punch out? So I really hope that this can go in that direction and that we can really lean on all of these other therapeutic approaches that that hand over real seamless, you know, analogies within the boxing realm. I think with people like you at the helm who are so passionate about it, like we're going to see that. We're already seeing that relative to where we were two years ago. You made so much progress in that time. Like I said before, in five years, we might know so much more about the mechanism of what's actually happening on a neurological level and on the, the level of physiology. We might have so much more outcome based research papers. Um, and this will be like that moment where we were like, we were kind of onto something that wasn't, oh you know, super robust in the evidence base yet, but you know, it had a lot of promise and, you know, I think we'll, everyone will look back and be like, Danielle was one of those people who was like really brave and was just like, no, I believe in this. I'm going to keep doing it. Um, I'm excited um, to have that podcast in five years time. We can play this clip back uh, and be like, I told you so. Oh my gosh, I'm literally like goosebumpy all over thinking back to, I think it was two years ago when we first spoke and now to hear, you're right. I feel like even back then I was like, can I say that I'm this thing called a boxing therapist? I made it up. And now it's like two years later and it's like, no, where are those boxing therapists out there? So I can't wait for another couple of years from now when we actually have some um, kind of qualitative 
study behind this. And if anyone's listening to this and is interested in helping create this in a laboratory type way, we have so much already prepared, literally down to the curriculum, down to what has to be controlled, what we can't control because we're human. But I am so excited to get there. And Georgia, you were such a big part of this because this first time coming on here was my kind of awakening, realizing like, oh my God, I live in Israel where we're all kind of geeky and into Krav Maga and emotional things. And But then it was meeting you halfway across the world going, no, this is happening. Look how many other people I've brought together. And so a huge thank you to that. I'm like, it's it's a beautiful thing that we can come together and develop this. Yeah, it really is. And like I said, um, I definitely want to be a part of helping trying to make this into um, a thing. I think there's such a need for more of an evidence base. I'll be doing my best to connect folks. Um, yeah, I would echo that sentiment, reach out to me. Um, and yeah, I will probably be having a look through my network and seeing who might be the right fit um, to pitch this type of a research project to. Um, but I want to circle back just very briefly to your project in Florida um, and the work that you're doing now. Can you let everybody know if they're based in, in the US near Florida or if they're oh in Israel? Gosh. Like, how can they work with you? How can they be involved in your projects? Um, all of it. Okay, so first of all, I am completely online right now, which is really funny to say, but boxing therapy through COVID got really good at training, even Krav Maga moves. I'll have like my second here with me and literally be teaching and telling the person we're training wherever they are in the States, like bring someone with you because you're gonna have to practice. Um, so that's mm -hmm. first of all. Second of all, we're really excited in Tampa, Florida. We have someone who's gonna be starting up some programs, please that over the summer. So that's something that's right now. Our pilot location was on the other side of Florida. I would love for that to pick up again, um, but we did move to the other coast. So that's kind of exciting. I think um, as of right now, the best way to get in touch with us is really through our website or social media. We're on Instagram and Facebook as Boxing Therapy Place. Um, but but really come on come on the website. There's like a contact for each thing because if someone wants to learn more about how they themselves can use these methods, that's right there. And also if there's a clinician or a martial artist that wants to learn how to use these, that's what we're doing right now. We're really, really interested in training. And also we're still, even though it's a couple of years, we're in the beginning, so it's very personal. So people are loving that when they sign up, it's like these small cohorts of either like two people training. Um, actually the person in Florida, we did, privately and it was amazing. So we're still in that kind of um, incubator and development um, stage. And so, yeah, I'd, I'd really like for people to just write in. It'll either go to someone right under me or me. And we're really paying attention to who writes in these days. Amazing. Thank you so much for coming on. We'll obviously have you back in in less than five years to talk about how far we've come. <laughs> I hear that. It's not going to take that long. Thank you for being part of the club. We'd love to hear from you. If you'd like to get in touch, please refer to the information in the show notes. If you'd like to support this podcast, please consider leaving us a review or subscribing on whichever platforms you use to listen or watch the podcast. The Conscious Combat Club acknowledges the traditional owners of the lands in which we work, live and play. Always was, always will be Aboriginal land. We'd like to say thank you to Nari for the beautiful song Shape Me heard at the beginning and end of every episode. Like to connect with Nobody Nari, shapes you can me. find her on Instagram at Nari the Center. Don't gotta tell you what my name is, I don't gotta explain it. Walk in the room, hear a boom erupting like I'm famous. I'm here shedding shells, I'm shameless. I fear nothing, no complacence. Walk to many tight ropes with no hope, so I became this poster. They hold over all the heads of trauma holders. You don't need to know my history. I move boulders, Atlas shrug, cause I lifted the weight above his shoulders. No pretense of defense, move first like chess soldiers. This goes deeper than empowerment, cause huh, I'm the one that power it. Physical meets mental challenge me to keep devouring. If I can't change the scenery, at least I change perspectives. No longer isolated, but elevated and selective. Darkest places become beautiful spaces. This is where rage meets patience, meets power, meets gracious. 
meets We're so glad you came and the feeling is contagious When you the walking impact of intended bad intentions When you the manifesting of collecting all they tensions You the soul and body hold it all and still remember But I'm a work in progress testament to all contenders Forgot what it was like to have control over self Forgot what it was like to be the one in charge Forgot in my reflection I could see all my wealth Forgot that with my bare hands I break all these bars Barriers and obstacles They can't cage me They can't chronicle all my experiences And reduce them to appearances When I was truly beaten Gave myself clearances to fall down Mess up and get myself back up I'm not looking for clovers Cause I don't believe in luck Damn you were badass I heard them say it clearly Why thank you very much I know now I'm not weary Of what's next for me Cause I expect to see Growth like I was planted, watered, fed, and bloomed to be the positivity and accountability. Knowing they won't step if I'm the agent of my agency. I think I found my voice again, huh? I think I found my voice again, huh? I'm not sorry, I'm not sorry, you're the end where I begin. Boundaries, I know them well. Take a breath and meditate. Who is she? I know her well. Now I get to open gates. One, two, one, two. I don't need your permission. And if you get then use your intuition to know that I won't stay where respect is ever missing and everything I do that's me making decisions is truly underrated the value of self-worth forgot that I was rich from the moment of my birth a penny for my thoughts no really you can't afford it you cannot buy my story rewrite it or record it you cannot buy my story rewrite it or record it huh?